Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira the Third. I'm Louis Fertel. Still, I'm going to keep doing it till I get it right. <laughs> uh, and I am happy to welcome our guest host this week, Zach Stafford. Hi, so good to be here. I'm so, I, you know, not in my wildest dreams that I think I'd ever be guest hosting. I never thought I'd be good enough to be here. So this is really life affirming right now to be here with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck do you think we are? <laughs> yeah, I was just sitting reading this person's opinion columns from MSNBC and I'm like, are you sure you want to waste your time with us? What? Real thoughts? Eloquently stated? Go no. away. I know. I really love what okay. you know. I really love what you, I've known Ira for a while at least and I just meeting but no I'm a big believer I mean I have this whole background of being like a crime reporter and all these other really intense things but I think culture is like the best way to talk to people about the world so and y'all do that really well so you know before this like my uh-huh. friend Kimberly Drew did the show Saeed Jones are like my best friends they were like girl those two have an encyclopedic knowledge of every fucking thing and I was like oh god I'm so scared of this well you better bring it okay? <laughs> I'm gonna try yeah. I'm gonna try yeah. yeah this isn't an excuse don't pull up yeah. in the Sri Lanka I know <laughs> I'm gonna show up I'm gonna show up and show out but um yeah <laughs> your, your reputations, even in our media circles, are very, uh, it's very large. So I'm excited to be here. Well, what's also exciting is we were just talking about um, before we were recording, all three of us went to school in Chicago. Yep. Or I'm, I'm from Chicago. I didn't go to school in Chicago, but I admire right. people who Where'd do you go, go to school, school again. College. The University of Iowa, which is oh, okay. which is a, um, a a refuge for Chicago suburbanites who think the University of Illinois is too ugly, um, basically. <laughs> well, you went to high school in Illinois. That's correct. So yes. It's sort of the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. Okay. School school with the rest of the Breakfast Club. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Ali Sheedy and I just hanging out. <laughs> Isn't that where John Hughes' movies were set in Illinois? Yes, but his were always in like the kind of um more like ritzier suburbs, yeah. like a Highland Park, etc. The North Shore. Those, pe- those people look at where I'm from, the southwest suburbs, and think they've stumbled into Indiana. Fair. Except for Ferris Bueller, I guess, which is actually set in Chicago. Correct. And the also part. the suburbs. Yeah, right. Starts in the suburbs, yeah. goes into the city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, isn't that how all isn't uh, that how all of them begin? Like, isn't the babysitter adventure movie? They begin in the suburbs, go into the city. Like all the movies correct. are like suburb city, suburb city, because it's all scary. Yep, yep. yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, John Hughes actually isn't uh involved in Adventures in Babysitting. It's Chris Columbus, um, the other conquistador. Yes. <laughs> as I refer to him. <laughs> Uh, I I have never known a director more who uh, is as polarizing as Christopher Columbus or Chris Columbus. I'm sorry, uh, he was born Chris Columbus. He is not a Christopher. Huh. Um, Though he utilized yeah, Elizabeth Shue well, and not many people have done that. Uh, leaving Las Vegas, you know, I remember she was in a movie called Kill Your Darlings years ago. But otherwise, I sit around and wonder about Elizabeth Shue. 
<laughs> Wait. Before we wrap the intro, I do want to say something about Zach Stafford. I was reading a, or hearing about your fascinating opinions regarding Dennis Rodman as somebody you grew up sort of in, like thinking about from yeah. a queer perspective. And I think I've never thought about it that way before, but as a Chicagoan, mm. he was like one of the few celebrities I could think of growing up that, first of all, loomed large, couldn't escape him. Yeah. And he was also a male who was, quote unquote, outrageous. Yeah. Like people talked about him the way they would talk about like Bette Midler. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I just have never thought about him that way until you brought it up. I'm like, Thank you. I like did this whole series earlier this year on a sports podcast where they invited me in. I'm not a sports journalist. And they were like, what would you do? And I was like, I want to talk about Dennis Rodman's queer. And it like blew all their minds. So we spent, you know, I brought in all the out athletes and we all talked about it. Um, and everyone was like, wait, I guess he was really queer. And I called my family. So it was funny how like we have this person in our mind that like we all think of as queer, but no one talks about how Dennis Rodman was like the first major big queer athlete. Um, yeah. And then he's in GQ this month with a huge spread right after talking about these things too. So it's his moment again mm. uh i've always been you know sort of enamored by dennis robin too because i think particularly you know um coming from a black household uh and um you know the the idea of queerness being in you know certain spaces of the community but not something that i feel like we actively talked about we didn't actively talk about it and i had a whole uh so uncle um who was gay or had a partner um, so but i didn't feel like we were like you know this is what this is what the homos do yeah. you know we never had that combo yeah. but there was always you know seeing like dennis rodman on tv and you know the yes the way you talk about him as being outrageous and weird but also the way that like you respected him because he was a great basketball player and was mm -hmm. sort of respected like the um iconography and also didn't really talk about him in sort of like a derisive way that i would sort of hear like maybe some people talk about him outside of the home mm -hmm. maybe because it was the knowledge you know that like um we had a person like that in our family, you know? Yeah. So like we, you know, what, there was a different respect um, towards Dennis Robbins. So, yeah, I, yeah. I think like Ira, what you're making me think of is like when I was working on that project is that I realized through talking to my family that the the thing that was set up for me as a kid was if you're going to be gay, you better be the best at whatever you do because Dennis Rodman mm -hmm. was weird, but he was good. Like he's one of the best athletes to uh -huh. ever play the game, and that's why people like him. So I was like, oh, and then that's what it became like this big struggle of like, is that the message we want to tell young queer kids? Like you could be queer, but just be amazing. Like I want some mundane, boring uh -huh. gay kids right now. <laughs> that's a, that's a <laughs> Pete Buttigieg oh, uh syndrome. Like he's sitting at home memorizing an encyclopedia exactly. right now, being like, I have to be ninety nine. Percentile. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, and that's even more um of a burden when you add in the whole, you know, like um black thing of, you know, um uh, twice as good to mm -hmm. get have as much thing. And then it's like, oh, but then you're also uh queer too. So like you gotta what you gotta be three times as good. Three times. You gotta be the best. I mean, talented ten thing got nothing <laughs> on black queer people. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I never thought of it. That's gonna be the title of your memoir, uh Ira. Talented ten thing got nothing on queer people. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe a chapter. A chapter. Uh we do already have my title. Um Young Gifted and Gay. Hell. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, no, it comes from a Real Housewives of Atlanta quote. Ironically, uh, or coincidentally, um, my editor decides which words um, are appropriate. Um, I don't know. Um, but uh, no, it's called Pure Innocent Fun, which is a Nini quote. Mm. And speaking of Nini, our guest this week is Portia Williams from the Real Housewives of Atlanta and now author of the pursuit of Porsche.
And you know what? The interview does not go left because I do not mention that I am team twirl. <laughs> you don't. You don't. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 uh, Zach and I interviewed Portia this week, and uh, I do not mention that my favorite housewife of all time is Kenya Moore. Because she would have shut off the camera. Oh, yeah, Portia would always. Have been, but has she always been? I've seen the pictures of you two together, but I was like, has this been like a long lasting love? Uh, I think I've I've loved her since um, her first season. I really have. Yeah. I think my favorite I, yeah, I housewife think... of Atlanta is um, Melanie Wilkes. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Gone with the Wind, but woo, she goes through it. That's a joke. I, I got that. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? I was like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lewis is like, pull up in the Terra. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, Scarlett was looking for freedom. Um, <laughs> kind of Lewis, Lewis, you are familiar with one real housewife of Atlanta. Do you know Kim Fields was on the show for one oh, season? Right. No, I have a vague mem memory that she was on that. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're doing the Facts of Life live with uh, Jimmy Kimmel as Maestro. And who is playing Tootie? It is Gabrielle Union. Oh. I am the, mm. the, the Nebraska's own. Very <laughs> Nebraska's own. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we're going to start our show. Not only is Portia here, um, we are going to obviously discuss um, the loss of Stephen Sondheim Oof. this week. Um, my father. Mm-hmm. And then also, we are going to do something a little bit new for Keep It, I feel like. We're going to do a holiday gift guide. I love telling people what to buy, where to run, who to buy for. Is it a scam just to get free stuff? I don't know. <laughs> we're, we're about to find out. <laughs> God, I'm going to change my list then. I think I have those. <laughs> uh, I recommend nothing but Gucci. <laughs> So if you'd like to hit me with it, Gucci, Alessandra, hit me with the Gucci. So uh, anyway, we'll be right back with more Keep It. Before we head into what we can only expect to be another wild year, Cricket presents What a Year. Join Pod Save America's John Favreau, if you must, John Lovett, Tommy Vitor and a lineup of your favorite cricket hosts, including us, for a night of sketches, audience games, and much more. I just ran into Tommy at uh, a workout facility. That 40-year-old blonde boy can handle a treadmill. Let me tell you something. With your help, <laughs> we'll also be raising money for our No Off Years Fund. Tune in live for the What a Year live stream on Tuesday, December 7th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. RSVP at crooked.com slash what a year. Still looking for the perfect gift for the holiday season? Check out our Crooked Holiday Collection for Keep It Tees, hoodies, Dex calendars, and more. This merch looks so good. I'm so excited to be hawking it at you. The calendar, my googly eyes and the little illustrations. I'm in love. Shop all the new festive arrivals now at crooked.com slash store. On Friday... The most influential figure in the history of the American musical died. Sorry, Gershwin. Well, Fuck you. In your face. Okay. Rodgers and Hammerstein. 
who gives a damn? Yeah. Porgy and be gone. Uh. <laughs> uh, Steven Sondheim died at 91. Um, and honestly, you, you know what was so interesting about this? Um, I feel like for people who love Sondheim, grew up in theater, um, you know, um, it felt like Steven Sondheim, you know, was like never going to die. Mm-hmm. Right. And... On the other side, uh, friends of mine who weren't uh, in theater were like, uh, Steven Sondheim's still alive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, this one, this one really hit me, especially because um, I remember last year, even, you know, like during the pandemic, um, one of the highlights of it was um, the Sondheim's like 90th Mm -hmm. birthday celebration. Right, right, right. With every anybody who's basically ever acted was a part of it. So. Um, yeah. And in fact, I think something that's interesting about Stephen Sondheim is that if you're familiar with him at all over the past 50 years, you're familiar with tributes to Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. Like there's no such thing <laughs> as the, there's no such thing as just being like, oh, he's somebody who does a good job in musical theater. It's like, no, he is the revered person in musical theater. He's like his own holiday, basically. Um, no, I mean, to try to encapsulate what it means that he's gone now. Um it's it's he's like the Walt Disney of a yeah. certain group of people, which is to say creating not just a vision of magic and emotional clarity and wonderment. But if he did not exist, there would basically be we wouldn't have half the understanding of theater that we do. Like he he pushed boundaries with almost every single work he did, even going back to the ones where he just wrote the lyrics, yeah. which include, you know, West Side Story. Yeah. So uh, it's just it's you have to go incrementally project by project to get to how revolutionary he was and how how sophisticated the characters could be how a musical could be about you know emotional indecision like complicated feelings you know and it wasn't always about wrapping everything up in a nice bow he really loved living in difficult adult feelings um and exploring what it meant to be a person yeah well you got to see his growth too because i think he even famously discussed how you know um he he wishes he had done more with even the lyrics for West Side Story, just because what when you think of a Sondheim musical, particularly um, his iconic ones, which didn't even really hit until, you know, um, he was in his 40s um, and then 50s because so much of his work is about understanding um, life and what it is to be an adult um, and everything you've gone through. And obviously you aren't going to write lyrics uh, and characters like that um, until you've lived a long time. Um, When you listen to a Sondheim song, um, listen to like Into the Woods, Sweeney Todd, each character comes alive in the dialogue in the lyrics in the song uh in the way that the music is composed uh and i think that um he's discussed before you know how like west side story just only writing the lyrics for that um you know like the the characters aren't don't really come alive mm-hmm. so much in the songs as much as they do you know in um the acting and um the um dialogue um i do want to point out before we continue that i saw the new west side story last night oh i hate you i'm so jealous fucking fantastic good uh and and um the the original is one of my top 10 movies um i watch it every fucking year wait uh, sidebar is is rita gonna get the nomination or no is it too small a part 
I think she'll get it. Okay, yeah. good. Mm. I think she'll get the nom. I think she'll get the nom. And unfortunately, <laughs> oh no, the Ansel love. Here we Ansel, go. Ansel is fucking great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've enjoyed him in many films. I mean, uh, yeah, listen, you know what? They put the songs in his key, and he <laughs> delivered what he needed to deliver. Uh, but I, I mean, it's a beautiful script uh, um, from. Um, Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg doing his first musical is really uh, at his um, best. So, I mean, we'll talk about that more once other people are able to see it. But um, really, really impressed me. And also Mike Faced, uh, who plays Riff, is the best part of the film for me. Mm. Shocked that Riff is the best part, followed by Ariana DeBose, mm. who plays Anita. Something you just said, Ira, about, you know, Sondheim didn't really hit a stride to his later moments in life, I would think is like exactly right when you talk about Sondheim, because people don't realize that he wrote, you know, the lyrics to Gypsy and West Side Story before he was even 30. So he was really, really, really young. And what also was happening was that he was deeply in the closet. And I didn't even like singing in the closet because he lives at a time in which no one was out. I think Sondheim talked about he'd be mm. like four gay people when he was working on West side story which is insane um but we see his coming out and understanding himself in the world with his own career really blowing up and being more comfortable himself because i think he first started dating men in his 40s and i just like a friend of mine called me and said you know what's so wild about sondheim is that our gay elders and culture never lived this long due to the aids epidemic like especially those in theater and the fact that he's 91 mm. and survived all of that is tremendous and created such impactful work it's just something i've just been thinking about a lot this week and yet he also has one of my favorite um, queer friendships with, uh, I think I even brought this up in recent weeks, Ira, uh, Anthony Perkins, the actor, he, they wrote a movie together called The Last of Sheila, which uh, mm. was a way for them to uh, capitalize on their love of puzzle making. It's this movie where you, it's a mystery, but like uh, there's basically a host of this strange party of people who sets up a mystery that bas- that goes awry. And it's about rules and gamesmanship and stuff so anyway if you want to get into that part of uh steven sondheim's brain the the puzzle maker who was obsessed with like writing like crosswordy type features for um uh, new york publications once upon a time that's a fun way to explore him too i also just want to say something else that's specifically gay about uh steven sondheim the way he talks about what he doesn't like about his own work is such (laughs) gay gay man shit (laughs) like like, (laughs) for instance he does not like many of the lyrics to west side story nowadays which is crazy as it's you know one of the you know top five musicals ever like certainly reproduced musicals in like high schools etc uh he like he says uh one of the characters is it Tony who says uh, the world became just an address. I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. right now. And he goes, this character suddenly sounds like he's read a lot of books. Nobody who lived that life would be coming up with this. And it's like, girl, like <laughs> it's a musical. We're like suspending our disbelief anyway. What are you talking about? You know? uh, but I think that's what I love about him. You know, like his characters feel like real mm-hmm. people and they feel like, you know, um, the fucking sweetie Todd, you know, like Mrs. Lovett feels like a real person who's who's smart and canny um, and has found a way to survive in the world. But she's not going to be, you know, like um, quoting literature, you know, like the way that the characters in like a little night music are, you know, and, um, you know, talking about him being um, gay, too. You know, I think that like. um his work does this interesting thing for me that I would say also is akin to um, Tennessee Williams, right? You know, another one of our queer elders of theater who um, 
Tennessee, you know, starting earlier than um, Sondheim, you know, he, you know, a lot of his sexual repression was, uh, you know, in his work, you know, and he didn't really, unfortunately, get a chance to realize his life in sort of the open way that um, Sondheim later would get to. Uh, and I think you can sort of see that uh, sadness mm -hmm. and sort of resentment in a lot of um, Tennessee's later works, um, which no one really needs to read. Yeah, I was saying, yeah, uh, you don't have to go there. You don't have to do it to yourself. Uh, <laughs> the milk trade doesn't stop here anymore. Yeah. We know. Uh, I'm, I'm not on it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's company. Mm -hmm. His 1970 musical, um, one of the, one of his best, um, certainly most beloved um, by a Sondheim yeah, fanatic. I think it's yeah. the number one yeah. on Spotify. Yeah. His most streamed is the Company um, soundtrack. Yeah, mm -hmm. his um his third best show, but um you know we don't have to get into that. Uh, company is the story you know of like this man Bobby who's turning thirty. Uh, and is sort of um, dissatisfied in his life. He might even be fucking depressed, uh, really, once you dig into the lyrics. But um, there's also the undertone of the fact of, you know, like a gay man writing this character uh, and this sort of restless life that he has. And it's sort of, you know, like it feels Tennessee Williams-esque in that you can read Bobby as a gay mm -hmm. man if you would like to. Yeah. Mm. Um, or you could not, you know, the, the version that's on Broadway now um, transferred from the West End and it has a woman in the lead, uh, which I think works for the text uh, beautifully. Um, but weirdly, I mean, the best part of the musical is Patti Lapone, a queer icon, and then um, the um, getting married today uh, is you know, done by a man in this revival version because it's a queer couple. And, you know, those end up being the two highlights of the musical. So I'm like, you know, maybe company just works better when it's very gay. Yeah. By the way, you've, and, got, to, uh, you've got to look up the versions of Getting Married Today that are online specifically. I know you're going to bring up Madeline Kahn. <laughs> I'm a human being. And I was going to say okay. my Madeline Kahn spiel for the uh, Mel Brooks portion of this uh, podcast. But man, the Madeline Kahn version really, really... Um, Let's her do her. I'm teetering over the edge thing, like uh, you know, mm -hmm. my life is falling apart. You know, so you 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 really get the most of that. You know, she's singing at auctioneer speed too, which you kind of uh, don't think of Madeline Kahn as being able to do, but my God, does mm -hmm. she? That is maybe. Listen, I mean, like when I say his third best show, that's only because to me personally, um, Sweeney Todd is my favorite, followed by Into the Woods, then followed by Company. Um, but you know, like. All fucking three are like his like, you know, pinnacle for me. And but I think that getting married today is like in um argument for like one of his just best songs because it is so um first of all, it's so fucking hard. Yeah. To well, sing. No, it's a marble. Uh, <laughs> you're you're like blown up against the wall when you're watching people perform yeah. this. Yeah. And it's like the amount of dialogue that you have to say at rapid fire, and then also as an actor, um, act out and you're shifting from moment to moment and it's like i think it really separates you know like people who are iconic and people who aren't there's a great carol burnett um version of it that she also does at a tribute uh, which by the way 
people talk about giving people their flowers, uh, and we are giving Sondheim his flowers, but I want to point out that we gave that man his flowers, like, every yes, other day. He got a, no. <laughs> every uh, other day there was a Sondheim tribute I mean, going has, on. he has a theater it, named after him already. Before yeah. He died, like, which yeah. is wild. Like, yeah. That never happens. And if you are a, um, Neil Simon is the only other one. Mm-hmm. I think so. At the that I can think of off the top of my head, someone's going to tell me I'm wrong. Actually, uh, Helen and, Hayes is 114 <laughs> years old and walks in, the <laughs> <laughs> she, and she's angry. <laughs> Wait, I had a question for y'all. Um, have y'all ever been in a Sondheim musical? Like in high school, I have not. No, not at all. God, I mean, I mean, thank mm. God. That's like a blessing to society. I <laughs> You're like, I've not. What about you, Ira? Yeah, no one, wa- no one wants to hear me sing that. <laughs> um, but I was involved in a production of um, West Side Story in high school and a production of Sweeney Todd oh, nice. in undergrad at Loyola Chicago, which is probably why um, I associate um, Sweeney Todd so much. Yeah. Um, I, asso- I assume know. Zach, you are in one. I I just re- remembered the week that I was in Gypsy when I was 16. Um, and I think that's how I came out to my whole high school because I played like, at the end there's like this random character is like a French designer or something and runs in and I did that and I did it very flamboyantly. And I remember getting off stage and my theater teacher going, you did that too well. I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, wow. I was like, okay, clock. Get the faggot off the stage. Yes, I'm not her. watching that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But um, by the way, that reminds me of Stephen Sondheim's relationship, consummate relationship to new and upcoming artists, which yes. oddly enough is now being immortalized in the movie Tick, Tick, yeah. Boom, which we've discussed on this podcast. But um, Also and, great. Yeah, Andrew Garfield's great. But specifically, Bradley Whitford plays Stephen Sondheim in it. And it's just so nice to see that part of Stephen Sondheim's life realized where he just was never obsessed with being an elder statesman, wanted to know what was new and happening and encourage people and be specific and not be trite while he did it. So that's really cool to see. Um, And also, by the way, Stephen Sondheim could also be a little bit of a bitch. Yeah. If you look up some of yeah. his quotes, he, he when he called Lady Gaga's Oscars performance of the Sound of Music songs a travesty and said, like, those aren't meant to be sung in an operatic way. I don't know. There's just like a sense <laughs> of he, he can't help but be so honest and direct and follow his, you know, insane and rad instincts mm-hmm. all the time, even if it means being like this pop star overstepped her bounds yeah. or whatever. So just another dimension to love about him. I, I, I do love that because I, you know, I feel like there's these moments where, you know, especially when someone beloved like Sondheim dies, you know, like you get the speeches about like, you know, how great he was, how much he meant to you, how much he inspired people. But, you know, like there's, there's the moments when you like you get to remember that someone was also a human being yeah. and, you know, and not everyone is walking around uh, like um, St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. I don't know. Um I don't actually know what St. Thomas Aquinas did, and I went to <laughs> Jesuit school. Um, someone's going to write in and be like, Ira, St. Thomas Aquinas was a serial murderer. I don't know. <laughs> no, he uh, wasn't. <laughs> but it's actually fitting for a guy who wrote the lyric, you're not good, you're not bad, you're just nice. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You know, pointing out to people, you know, like being nice, um, being sweet uh, isn't the be all end all you know like that's not the destination you want to be on you want to be um an actual good person you know um our producer says that in 1960 the mansfield theater in new york was named the brooks atkinson theater in his honor uh and then he died in 84 
Uh, and the August Wilson Theater was renamed 14 days after his death um, in 2005. So, you know. So there's one that was before. But I knew August was really, when yeah. I said that, I was like, the August Wilson one was like, really? I, I was like, was he there or was he not there? But it was right after. No. I mean, another reason why August Wilson is so fucking important to me, too, is when it's just all this fucking death at Loyola Chicago. But, like, we were doing a production of uh, Joe Turner's Come and Gone um, that uh, one of our professors, Jonathan Wilson, was directing, who had a close relationship with August Wilson and it was supposed to come and see the production as well and then he died. Oh wow. Jesus. So uh don't be involved in a show at Loyola Chicago. Yeah, Jesus you, Christ. You, you, what is this? Right? Agatha Christie die. situation. Just go down the street and go hang out at the Paul. That's where I went. So that's, uh, people don't die there. I tried out for that theater school. I did not. Uh, yeah. yeah, their careers die there. Hey, that's I'm sorry. that way to, to defend the Paul. Jeremy Harris got kicked out of that program after his first year. Um, and then Ter Robin Williams. Terrell McCraney also went through that program at DePaul. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of our black I know. You know I'm I know. I'm being. I'm being. I'm being. I'm being. I'm being a bitch. Ain't nobody. Ain't nobody gone through Loyola Chicago. Okay. Uh, except for um, old girl Jennifer from the TV show House. <laughs> not, not Jennifer. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> she she, she, she to went to somewhere. Loyola Chicago and me. And you? I guess. Uh, but <laughs> um, before we wrap up, though, like, what are your um? Do you have a favorite Sondheim show? Do you have a favorite Sondheim song? Mm -hmm. Well, I will say, I, a little night music, I think it's such a pleasure to not just listen to the music, but my God, have the lyrics in front of you while you listen to it. It is so many lyrics. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's actually, for me, an incomplete experience without both of those components because you get the... The cadence, which is so specific. I mean, listen to Sondheim talk about where he places emphasis on a given word and how it needed to be the letter, the word A in a sentence as opposed to something else. Um, so you get that. But then also, you don't miss any of the words, which are like so witty. The internal rhyme is so deep. Sometimes you might not even hear it when you're going through it. I might just be tone deaf. Maybe other people pick up on these things right away. But in terms of, uh, uh, I mean, also, of course, Ladies Who Lunch, what yeah. a wonderful song. Yeah. We haven't even brought that up. The, the Elaine's Trich of it all we haven't brought yes. up. We haven't brought up Ethel Merman and Gypsy. I mean, there's so, like, the leg, the legends upon legends upon legends who have um, sung his work. Oh, my God, the pictures with Bernadette I've mm -hmm. been seeing recently. Just There's so many layers of pain to, to him finally being gone. Mm -hmm. uh, what about you? I mean, Zach? Send in the Clowns, I just think, like, is iconic and i don't know just something about how he when i listen to songs like that or ladies who lunch when we talk about like the aesthetic of queerness about these like rich white women going through a lot of stuff and how we gravitate towards these like real these housewives pretty much like real housewives we're talking about today like i feel like sondheim mm -hmm. was doing a lot of that work in the 60s 70s and 80s that is the archetype of the type of woman we're obsessed with and i love it like when i look at like rose and gypsy like I still sing all of those songs. Everything's Coming Up Roses, I think is just like one of the most incredible songs ever on the Broadway stage and it will outlive all of us forever and ever. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's so many I could name. I mean, you know, I've, I've said before that, you know, my favorite is um, Sweeney Tan and, and, you know, as gory and, you know, as like sort of fantastical and operatic as that show is, you know, there's like some really like, quiet beautiful moments in that musical you know and i think just like um victor garber's voice singing joanna just like one of the 
most soothing things that like has ever touched my heart. Um, I love. Um, oh, and speaking assassins. of Joanna, by the way, Joanna Gleason and in Into the Woods. God, you can't yes, stop. It into keeps the woods. going. Yes, yes. And I think like mo- there's a reason why people always quote "Moment in the Woods." Um, there's reason people. There's a reason people always quote "Into the Woods." You know, just because like. When you talk about a show that's about life and about um, what you learn and the journeys you go on, I mean, that is what Into the Woods fucking is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the movie sucked Um, (laughs) because um, no one wants James Corden on their journey of life, for one. And two, um, it's like you really need to know like what that musical is about before you make it. You know, I've seen so many different productions of it. and weirdly, there's a kid's version of it that, like, only does act one because, like, act two is too dark. Uh, that's the version that they get to schools, which is wild that he even allowed that because I feel like you don't even get the full story of the show, like, and what it emotionally means without the second act, you know? No, the and, first half um, is basically like, here are the fairy tales. You've heard of them, you know? Yeah. And, and then the second you know, act like, is like, now you don't know them. <laughs> Also, he had a lot of bad musicals, uh, which is great about him. Too. Well, he had a lot you know, of unsuccessful had, musicals, yeah, which is like very, ones. very interesting about him because he's not like a, a blockbuster person, really. Like no. it, it, most of his successes are just p- people loving them and not really they tore Broadway apart and, you know, they, they ran for 74 years. Yeah, he didn't like write Chicago, which has been right. on Broadway for 25 years. So, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and should it have been? <laughs> In fact, there's an entire documentary about Merrily We Roll Along, which uh, a, yeah. a famous flop, but like Jason Alexander is in it. And I already said this on the podcast. He is my favorite interviewee currently. He slays an mm. interview. So watch that music, watch that documentary specifically for him. I like Merrily We Roll Along. I will po- I will point out that like bad was an overstatement, but I will say that like I don't really enjoy anything in um, Bounce slash roads show slash wise guys slash gold um which is sort of a mess of a musical but there are like a few like really beautiful songs in it and i think uh someone asked what my favorite underrated sondheim song was on instagram the other day and it's get out of my life from that musical mm. um, i don't know it. So, I don't listen. yeah it's really really good and i feel like um my sondheim love came from theater in high school but it really came from when i realized that um each episode of desperate housewives was named after a sondheim song oh, wow really oh wow yeah you know and, a gay man's running that one yeah <laughs> mark cherry a faggot who knew <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> but no every episode of um desperate housewives is named uh after a sondheim song so yeah there we go. Un- unusually chic for that show. Don't drag Desperate Housewives. I mean, Desperate Housewives show. was the moment. Right. We moved for- on from the moment, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. When we're back, um, Zach and I uh, are joined by Portia Williams of The Real Housewives of Atlanta. And then we'll be back with more Keep It with me, Lewis, and Zach. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see 
Footprints in the Sand. That was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today rose to prominence as a cast member on The Real Housewives of Atlanta, also an activist and now an author. She is here today with a new memoir, The Pursuit of Portia, How I Grew Into My Power and Purpose. Please welcome Portia Williams. Hi. 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 I hear the applause. I hear all Thank you for having uh, me. Thank you for being here. It's so um it's been so exciting to see you go from, you know, um Bravo cast member to activist to author. And I remember, you know, like um last year, you know, like it was it was so exciting seeing you in the New York Times. Uh and now here you are uh hoping for that New York Times bestseller list. What is it like being an author adding that to your name first off first off i, I want to thank god foremost um i feel you know as soon as i got finished with the book it really hit me when i got finished with the audio version of the book um and reading it out loud it felt i felt like you know what i did this i fought through um I felt empowered afterwards. I really did. The feeling that I got, it immediately let me know that when someone else reads this book, they're going to get my intention behind it. It's going to reach them. Um, So I feel accomplished and I'm basking in it right now. Mm. And you know, Portia, Mm -hmm. you've been living your life on TV for over eight years now. So people know you really well and they've seen a lot of intimate details and memoirs are so intimate. So how did you begin that process of choosing the stories that we we didn't know? Um, And what was kind of like your way of balancing all that as you're thinking about like the the cameras and the book and everything else going on in your life? Right. 
Well, you would think it would be easy to say, okay, I've shown this, I'll tell that, I'll whatever. But, you know, because we know that on Housewives, you saw a lot of my life, you know, that's why a lot of my supporters have, they've been with me because they're like, oh, we see your growth. We've been on this journey with you. But in the pursuit of Portia, I really talk about my life from the very beginning. And I, it's in chronological order. And it goes through my 20s and my 30s of me becoming who I am today. The, the Portia 2.0, the Portia who's standing in her truth and Portia who has found her voice. Um, so in order to get there, I had to revisit some moments that, of course, most of us rather not talk about most of us rather not um unearth and if you if you will um but i had to in order to get the person reading the book to understand my true journey and to and to get what the point of the book is which is for them to understand you continue to move forward no matter what mm-hmm on that notion of, you know, even sharing stories, you know, now intimate details in a memoir, but even stories about yourself that you decide to share when you're on television for eight years, you know, knowing that your life was basically an open book or supposed to be for the audience to see, but also knowing that you would prefer if some things weren't on camera and how was the push and pull, you know, with other cast members who would be like, well, I want to reveal personal things about you on camera for ratings. Um, how was that? Well, let's talk about how I entered reality. Um, mm-hmm. I was a young wife um, married to a successful man. And, you know, I have my family's legacy carrying that on. And I really wanted to show a young black family. That was my intention when I started the show. Um, so I really had no idea what having a storyline was because for me, it just was my real life. So I came on the show just simply letting the cameras into my world. So I think, you know, from the very beginning, my storyline or whatever was never contrived. It was never really made up. And I just continued mm-hmm. that through my career on Housewives. Like literally each season, the producers get on the phone and they're like, all right, what you have going on? I'm like, nothing. And then I'm the main every year like you know you, I don't know exactly what you're gonna get because you don't know what life is gonna throw at you and I think that's what my followers have gotten from me is that I'm really living my real life on camera and growing on camera and a lot of the lessons that I learned in the pursuit of Portia that tr- count my life before Housewives and a little bit of Housewives it speaks to the person that they have seen so it talks about my family you know my father what he meant to me my mother her encouragement us being how I became an entrepreneur, um, you know, me longing to have a child, which people saw me have a baby on television, where that came from. Um, They often saw a lot of my relationships as well on camera. Um, But I do talk about in the book, a lot of relationships from 20 to 30, which um, really developed me into the woman you saw on camera. So a lot of the things that happened before I actually signed on at 30, those the abusive past with men had ended before housewives. So I'm revisiting mm-hmm. that in the book. And that is something that I never talked about on the show. So when it comes to your other point of having other housewives and someone re- reveal your personal life, well, that's just a part of being on the show. It just is what it mm-hmm. is. You just kind of have to deal with it. Of course, nobody wants to tell. You want to tell your own story, right? You don't want someone mm-hmm. else to tell your story. But that's a part of being on the show. And that's where you have to defend yourself, stand in your truth um, or, or whatever. So it just comes with it. Mm-hmm. 
And is there anything these days you, that you don't want to share with people? Like, are there any boundaries you're setting in your life? Because I just know I talk to so many memoir writers and when they let it out in the world, they're like, oh God, now more of me is out there and I want to pull some of it back. Because, you know, you've talked about uh, suicidality in the book, abortions, a lot of other abuse. So you've disclosed a lot, but is there anything these days that you're like, God, I need to keep this to myself? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. That was my entire idea when writing the book came up. It was like, all right, I'm already on reality television. I just didn't originally see the need to do it all because I was still blinded because I myself had not truly faced all of the things in the book that you just discussed. I don't live my life on a daily basis thinking about I, you know, was suicidal as a child. I don't think about how many times I was, you know, sexually abused in my 20s. I don't think about that on a daily basis. So it wasn't something that I immediately connected to when I thought about a book. I've, I, although I've always wanted to be an advocate for women who have been abused, it was always been a space I wanted to speak to. I just wasn't ready. So, you know, for me just to do a book and it be fluffed, it, it just wasn't going to resonate with me. It wasn't something I wanted to do. So writing the book really, really, really was a come to Jesus moment. It really was, you know what, I got to take a hard look at my life and not only look at it, I have to reveal these things, heal from them and able in order to help someone else. Like, just talking about these things, when I did the audio version of the book for one, it was hard for me even to read my own words out loud because I wanted to be so detailed in every story so that if some woman, a woman or a young man were reading the book, they can truly see themselves in a situation to realize my mentality so that they can see in those situations how they can make a different decision than what I made. And so the thread of the book is really about me not knowing my work, me not seeing myself um, as as valued in any situation, which led me to some of those pitfalls. Mm -hmm. Speaking of one of those situations from the book, one one really shocking moment is when you describe, you know, the sexual relationship that you had had with R. Kelly in the book. When you describe it too, you know, there's the air of, you know, obviously in hindsight and writing it, you know what had happened to those women who were in the house, you know, those younger girls. And, and um, you describe some of the unease you had even getting into um a relationship with him. Um, how do you feel you would have done things differently then? Um, or was there some part of you that was sort of even felt that something wasn't right here as things were happening, but you felt that this was an opportunity for like a music career or like you were felt like I'm trapped here. Um, and so I should make the best of it. So revisiting that moment um, with R. Kelly was just one of the things that I had to do to conquer this book. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he's a celebrity, so he's the one that everyone talks about, but it's very sensitive. It was just so emotional to put myself back in that mind frame at the time because I have had to heal and grow to get to the portion that you see today. And that's why I wasn't speaking on it then. And now for me to talk about it is still pretty difficult. It really honestly, honestly is. Um, but I'm doing it because I am standing 
with the victims. I am a victim as well. And in order for us to get to a place to have a voice and be able to use it, we have to realize that it wasn't our fault, that you know there are different points in my journey when I look back at the book and I even think about it, I'm like, okay, this is what created my mindset to allow me in that place. And, you know, before doing the book, I honestly had a lot of blame on myself. I placed a lot of blame on myself. I shamed myself. That's what keeps a lot of victims silent. But after I looked at each account, I realized it all had to do with me not valuing who I was. You know, I, I literally did not see myself as this young woman who had two parents who were entrepreneurs, who had loved her, who had, you know, raised me to be in any other situation. So when you think about a victim, you know, you think about the age or this or that, it's the mentality. Um, And it's someone taking advantage of someone who's in a weaker state of mind. Um, So like I said, in the book, I go in great, great detail in each situation. His is just one of them, which is, um, you know, why people want to talk about it. But I do want to create this conversation because at the end of the day, if another woman can see herself in my story and make a different decision um, for herself and, and, and take heed to red flags in her life or stop a dangerous pattern in her life, which you'll see in my book, there's patterns um, that that would do justice for me. That would mean that the book was successful for me. You know, Portia, something I've always noticed throughout your whole career in television is that you're really willing to be open about your own growth. I think a lot of people who don't even watch Real Housewives of Atlanta know about you talking about Underground Railroad being a real thing and all these other moments. But then from that moment, you've become a huge activist in Georgia, done a lot around Breonna Taylor, but the consistency through you and through your story is that you always are willing to show that growth, which I think is really frightening in a social media age where people are always trying to call people out and call them to the mat. So when did you realize that, you know, living a life like this was good for people watching you, but just really for yourself, because you've really become a better person in many ways and become really mature in so many aspects of your life. Right. And when it comes to social media and you talk about growth, um, you won't grow if you are only living on the opinions of other people. I told a girlfriend the other day, I said, girl, you're going to be so past where you are in your life. Someone's going to have to try to remind you of who you were. And that's what people on social media constantly do. They are trying to remind you who you were. They're living in the house that you've sold and you've left. You moved on Um, and you have to continue on your journey. And eventually they will be on that journey with you. Um, You listen, I have always been one to own my mistakes, honey. It it is there for the world to see. It's recorded on the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Um, But everyone is allowed to rearrange their life, rearrange their mindset and grow and be responsible for their actions. And with age, for me, came more responsibility to my legacy. So I can't afford to have those moments of so-called misspeaking or saying something ignorant anymore because my words have power. I am now on a platform where there are people who are watching and listening to everything I'm saying. So if I'm going to lend my voice to a cause like Black Lives Matter, I need to hold myself accountable for everything that comes out of my mouth and make sure I study and learn what I'm trying to amplify for African-Americans. And that's exactly what I did. And that's why I was able to be effective in the movement. Mm hmm. I mean, and speaking of moments like that, you know, I think that everyone remembers your personal growth and journey going from a physical altercation on um, Real Housewives of Atlanta. How does it feel knowing a moment like that is still just like 
part of your record for everyone to watch? And then how did it also feel, you know, like feeling like because um, the camera sort of like heightened drama that you got pulled back into a heated moment like that on your new show, Portia's Family Matters? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, listen, on Housewives, the cameras are rolling. And honestly, I was not paying attention to the cameras. Um, you know, I found a lot of moments on that show. I found myself feeling like the little girl from my book who had been bullied in school. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and I was acting as that little girl who didn't have the tools to deal with said bullies. It wasn't until I went through anger management on the show that I realized that anger is just an emotion that I was letting overpower me and change my character and so I was able to actually go to therapy and and kind of you know reel that back in but of course when you are dealing with family those listen they know you in and out upside down around <laughs> I don't care how many hours of therapy your family gonna make you add more hours all right <laughs> so you know listen I'm a work in progress and I'm sure I'll make a lot more mistakes good thing about it is is that I learned from my mistakes and I don't have regrets from anything anything I've been through and that's a part of me the the, the pursuit of Portia is that I, you know, I learned from the mistakes. I wouldn't change them. I wouldn't change anything in my life. I wouldn't count it out, even though a lot of it was very painful. A lot of it was very embarrassing. Um, it's made me the woman I am today. And now that it's out in the world, are there people going to be reading this that are like, whoa, I didn't know that. I didn't know that happened with Portia, like personal friends that are going to learn things about their own actions in your life. My mother. Wow. My, mother, my mm. own mother. Um, actually, she's supposed to be reading it this weekend. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's going to. Oh, she didn't read it before. She's had parts because she mm-hmm. had to be the mommy. So mm-hmm. she's, you know, mm-hmm. I often act like friends, but through writing the book, she had to be mommy because there was a point or after the first couple chapters where I had to pause for about three, four months during writing the book. It just got really, really emotional revisiting some of those moments and she was staying in my house a lot at the time and I would go in her room and just you know cry and just be upset and she had to just be right there by my side so she knows some of it but um Mm -hmm. she has to read the whole book so what in the book I am revealing things that even my own mother did not know um so yes of Mm -hmm. course my followers are definitely going to it's a whole different tone from the portrait that they've seen on the Real Housewives of Atlanta. You would have had to know me um, personally to know the portrait that you're going to read about in this book. Mm -hmm. I think that situation with your mother is so interesting to me, just because I'm Personally, you know, a lot of listeners of the show know that I'm in the midst of writing a book at the moment, you know, and it's a uh, pop culture. Th- thank you. You know, it's half, yeah, it's half pop culture essays, half memoir. And it's, I'm, you know, I've just come to the realization, you know, like that I'm going to have to reveal, you know, like things that your parents don't know, but also things about your feelings towards them that they might not know. You know, how did that feel? You know, um, was there ever a moment where you feel like, damn, am I being disrespectful to my mother, like by sharing things publicly? Or, you know, how did you get to that journey where you were like, you know what, this is my story and I have to share it and I just have to deal with whatever happens afterward? 
Well, with my mother, Diane Williams, you don't just do it and deal with it afterwards. Okay. That could mean, <laughs> that could mean her sending you back to where you came from. All right. So, no, I am not by no means disrespecting Diane Williams. So in the book, I do go into detail about some of our um, financial hardships. All right. Um, mm-hmm. We have been a team. And we have been through some struggles and we have had some heavy, heavy losses. Um, And I definitely had to talk to her first, you know, telling mama's business, like, mom, I want to talk about this. I want, and she was like, all right, do it, do it. If it's what you feel you need to do to tell your story, then do it. So she gave me the thumbs up. She gave me the approval to talk about the things that involved her, even relationship wise, just learning from her to be a woman. Some of those things that affected some of the things that I did. Um, I had to talk to her about. So, you know, I I definitely ran it by her. Um, But did I make choices in writing the book? Like some of the things that I didn't tell her? Yeah, I did. Because she already gave me the yeah. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, mom, do you know me telling, you know, that time we were broke? She was like, yeah. And I was like, ha. And I literally like put in three stories. So yeah, she's probably gonna be like, well, damn, my auntie was gonna tell all that. But nope. it is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> now she's gonna be more careful around you. She's like, oh damn. I can't so tell absolutely. Because she's she's probably thinking about book number two. Like, oh, let me be careful, but she put that in her second book. <laughs> I want to ask one last question before uh, you go. There was a lot of excitement around, I think, Nicki Minaj hosting the um, part of the reunion for Real Housewives of Potomac. And I think what was so interesting about it, too, was that for years, you know, obviously with Andy Cohen as the ringleader of Bravo and, you know, sort of like hosting all the reunions, it was interesting seeing um, the cast up there with another black woman asking them questions mm-hmm. and getting into things. How has your relationship with Andy evolved um, since the show began? Do you still have a great one now? And were there also moments where you felt like you wished that there'd been maybe another black woman at reunions asking questions because you thought they might have, you know, like gotten <laughs> deeper into things. You probably should have asked me that before I saw Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah, she was a little messy. Listen, you, know, you never know what's worse until worse comes. Okay. <laughs> I would be I would be begging Andy back instead of Nikki. What? Nikki is a super fan. She is a housewife mm-hmm. slash uh, host, okay? And you can tell by the way she <laughs> asked some questions. There was no skating around anything. Um, mm-hmm. I, but I, it was great entertainment. I enjoyed it. I just don't want to be sitting on the stage when she has the mic, right? I did yeah. Yeah. I mean, the ladies <laughs> literally looked like they were on lineup to just be shot down one by one. I mean, they were <laughs> It looked like a mom who was in another room and them kids was making noise and she coming in there whipping everybody. Like, she did not care. Like, Nikki came in there to get her answers. And, you know, Andy can do that, too. But, of course, like you made the difference, made the, uh, 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 a note of he's a white man and he's a whole. So it's like, oh, he can't speak of certain things. Well, Nikki did it all. She went right on in there. <laughs> so, no, I love uh-huh. my I love my Andy. And, and if I ever do another reunion, that's who I want sitting in that chair. <laughs> uh well thank you so much Portia. thank you and, uh, this was congrats on the book yeah. thank you i really appreciate the time guys
with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Well, the holidays are upon us, which means it's time to spend money on your ungrateful family and friends or on yourself. (laughs) That's truly what I love to do during Christmas. And then I forget, oh, wait, I got to buy things for other people. But uh, we don't want you to waste that money. So we assembled a list of gifts for you, our cultured listeners of Keep It, to give to the uncultured masses that populate your life. Help them. I believe you can. But only with our help, <laughs> Lewis. Mm-hmm. Why don't we start? Why don't we start with you? Okay, I was just thinking about. I can't explain why the presence of a memoir on a bookshelf is so calming to me. But I li- I collect them avidly, particularly if I'm obsessed with the uh, you know, star or whomever it is that I'm reading about. But um, there's a new, very good one uh, called "All About Me" by Mel Brooks, and. I mean, he's sort of the Sondheim of his own realm in a way, like these uh, comedies that are utterly irreplaceable, the performances within them, irreplaceable comic gems, and he goes through them so fabulously. And there are so many excellent anecdotes from his childhood. Sometimes sometimes like the childhood portion of a memoir, I just don't care about. I want to get to the moment, for instance, in the Mariah Carey memoir, when she's like a backup singer yeah. and about to emerge. I want to know about that, like that, that area and not like... My dad was mean or whatever. Like, I don't care. Um, but <laughs> Mel Brooks is luckily so funny. And also, you just got to cherish him. You don't often have like 95-year-old legends just walking around still being hilarious. So let's cherish the fuck out of that. You know, the Norman Lears, et cetera. We got to keep on appreciating. Um, so that's my first recommendation. Uh, for all those people who, by the way, are still not over the death of Cloris Leachman, because I count myself among your ranks. It was fucking sad. She should be 154 and walking here. Um uh, and then also something I love about the holidays that I don't get to do as much of because I feel like my family has cooled on them are board games. I just enjoy board games among friends. I enjoy um, picking people who know how to socially take turns and <laughs> cooperate. I think it's a good way to just socialize and feel like you're around people. You can just trust to uh not run an entire conversation all the time. Anyway, I think board games can be awfully revealing about people. That's what I'm saying. But there's a new game called Half Truth by trivia maestro Ken Jennings, uh, where basically it's uh, it's trivia and everything has six cre- or has six possible answers and three of them are correct. Like you, you know, like what animals have blue tongues? And there'll be three correct answers and three uh, fake ones. And you place bets on which ones are the correct answers. And I like new plays on trivia. You know, I'm always looking for ways to uh, 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 have trivia in a game that isn't just you're right or you're wrong. Or, you know, so having multiple answers is a nice, new, interesting idea. And I think I, I can't wait to play it with uh, friends. It's a little like Wits and Wagers, if you know that game. One of my favorites to mm-hmm. play also. So those are my you know, two, uh, two ideas. You know, I will say that um, one thing that I um, am remiss we never got in his 95 years of being alive was um, more Broadway musicals from Mel Brooks. 
The right, producers we got the two. are fucking amazing. Yeah. And we also I had mean, um, he, we had Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein, yeah, uh, which uh, Sutton Foster was in. Um, but the producers is so fucking good. Right. Like, and so ideal uh, for a musical, too. It's weird that it even took that long to draw out. Yeah. Uh, and like when you talk about performances, I'm just like I remember seeing that you know like Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, and that, that is that's that's giving you iconic. And honestly, I think the movie's fine. <laughs> the movie. Well, I'll say there's an interesting anecdote in this book about how he was told to fire Gene Wilder, which is, seems mm, insane. And he said, "Okay, I'll just do it," and then simply ignored the note. And then, like at, at the premiere, they're like, "Wait, he's still in it!" Like he just went ahead and just say yes to whatever and move right along. Uh, Passive aggression love, from the master. I love how that's how movies could work back then, though. <laughs> right? Like, like, oh, we don't know he's still in the movie. Uh, before we move on to Zach's, though, everybody, what's your favorite Mel Brooks movie? Oh well, it goes up and down. I, I think. It, it, Young Frankenstein's my answer, but I am a fan of High Anxiety because as somebody who's seen all the Hitchcock movies, it's it's a movie you get to earn because it plays on all these famous Hitchcock references and not so famous Hitchcock references. Um, you know, I really Kahn haven't seen to, High Anxiety. Oh, and Madeline Kahn gets to sputter her ass off as the like Hitchcock blonde in peril too in one particularly mm. fabulous scene. So you you got to see that. And of course, Cloris uh-huh. Reachman is terrifying, which we love from her. Mm-hmm. Do you have yeah, one mine's Young Frankenstein. I just pulled up the list of his movies to make sure I wasn't cheating, but no, Young Frankenstein. I, I just, I watched mm-hmm. it so much as a kid, so it's my most. Everybody's yeah. amazing in it. I'd, I'd agree, um, although I will say maybe it comes from the people that uh, in high school who first introduced me to Mel Brooks, but my favorite is Robin Hood Men in Tights. I mean, mm. yeah, it's, it's also great. 90s classic, right? Is it 90s? 90s. Yeah, yeah 93. Yeah. Also... <sighs> do have a soft spot for Dracula dead and loving it. I remember the commercials for that so much and wanting to, wanting to love it. And I think I saw it with my family and then them not reacting. You know, it's like when you're 10 years old and you're kind of learning yeah. what's funny and you're taking cues. From uh, people. It was one of those moments. <laughs> it's, it's very dumb. It's not great, but you know, it in 95. So I was at the right age to sort of appreciate it. That and like vampire in Brooklyn are two mid nineties, awful vampire movies that for some reason I still enjoy uh zach what are your my gifts gifts so i'll start off with one that i picked for you ira because i think it reminds me of casual luxury because i know that's like your favorite thing that's your phrase you used to have a newsletter called casual luxury right i did i did you know i gotta bring that back i don't forget i don't forget girl (laughs) but um one of my favorite things to do is everyone loves a tiffany's blue box obviously like that is just a thing um but not everyone can afford jewelry from tiffany's So what you do is you buy champagne flutes and they're 70 bucks. You get two of them. It comes in a beautiful box. People assume they're way more expensive because they're crystal than they are, but they're 70 bucks. And I feel like that's a good, like for someone you really like, you want to give them something crazy, like kind of look crazy, give them some champagne flutes. That's my like luxury hack that I would put in your your newsletter. Um, And then a chaotic pick I have that I brought because we're all gay is, have y'all seen the studio ready butt scrub? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, do you think I don't have yes. you, <laughs> it was like, do you think I don't have multiple flavors? I just tried the vanilla. See, girl, you get some like for everyone out there, even if you're not uh, gay, the butt scrub from Studio Ready is incredible. Like opening it up in the shower and your cat shower just now smelling like espresso is just what a way to wake up in the morning, I think. Oh my gosh. No, I mean you are speaking to my 
literal intercourse. intercourse. Um, <laughs> uh, and also they give you a little hand, at least in my experience, they, they give you these like little handwritten notes yeah. when you receive it in the mail. They're like, congrats on your ninth shipment. I'm like, are you shading? No, me? they do. I got an email today from the founder being like, let me know what you think. They're like super, like they have, it's called the concierge service for like a $50 spread. I love, <laughs> I love those though, because like, I feel like whenever I order uh, anything from Double Scorpio, mm-hmm. Like they put a handwritten note in there too. And they're like, thanks, Ira. And I'm like, you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm keeping you guys. I will be be buying again. Also, you're watching. (laughs) Um, But then the other thing, if you don't want to buy butt scrub, my big hack for people, especially when they're like moving into a new place, is you get them Aesop's hand soap. Because most people don't want to spend 40 bucks Mm. for hand soap regularly because you get it for like three bucks. But that hand soap, I mean, y'all know what I'm talking about. The beautiful bottle that people have in their bathroom. Totally. Perfect gifts because then people are like, oh, $40 soap, I'd have to buy this and I look rich. Great. So that's my. There's a specific brand of gay man in like, you know, like a New York mm-hmm. or LA who, when you visit their home, it's like everywhere, like every bathroom mm-hmm. and also the kitchen is Aesop. Yep. And you're like, okay, you like spending money <laughs> on certain things, you know? <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, so you- I like Aesop, but you know, because I'm. Because I'm bad with my money. I'm a melanin goat. Oh, look at her. Look at her. I mean, it's also, a good, also a good one. These are all great brands. I know. Is I know. The That's... big square one. Um, It's like the, bo- I mean, I could go grab a bottle and show you. It's like the, I mean, it's brown and like tan label. It's Australian. You actually pronounce it Aesop. And I only learned that because a friend worked there. Mm. But no one says Aesop. Just like mm-hmm. no one says Rihanna. They say Rihanna. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and then you you also have to say a fable every time you use it, Lewis. That's right. Yeah. The fox and the grapes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, then my last thing, and then I'm done, is I saw, well, as I was prepping for this, I saw joint candles, like like birthday candles. And I know people are always looking for fun mm. stocking stuffers, but you literally like put these really beautiful candles in your, your cake and you light them and they're all joints and you blow them out and then everyone grabs a joint and eats cake. So that's, there you go. Okay. Practicality. Is giving reefer madness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. I'm done. Ira, what's yours? Outshine. Okay. Uh, I absolutely will not. Don't say that. But uh, speaking of candles, because uh, we know candles truly have become synonymous with me. I feel only because I'm constantly getting DMs on Instagram from people who are saying, what are your candle recommendations for the holidays? I'm like, well, probably the same ones I told you last year to get. But I will toss in a couple of new ones. Um, I know that we're all tired of the fact that um, A24 isn't just a music movie studio, but they also, you know, seem to have like a, a, a grocery store, a curiosity <laughs> shop. <laughs> okay, I mean, um, you could you could shop A twenty four on DoorDash at this point, but um, Tony Clark there... comes to your door with a harrowing performance. <laughs> yeah, I would pay top dollar for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, their line of candles are really fucking good. Oh, really, um, they're genre candles, uh, and they they're a collaboration with um. The fragrance studio Joya, and they have candles that are horror, western, thriller, noir, adventure, musical, sci-fi, rom-com, and fantasy. And no, they smell really, really good. Mm. So um, the horror is my favorite. 
Um, but I also like the the rom com is really good too. So um, those candles come highly recommended, and it makes me want to try out their um, new cookbook, um, Horror Caviar, um, because I'm I'm a big I'm a big cookbook fan as well. Um, I try to um, get into um, cooking a bit more, you know, now that I'm, um, you know, living alone. And so I try to do, you know, like a one night a week where I do dig into like a random cookbook and like cook something. Mm. And so, um, you know, their products have been good so far. So I have to believe that horror caviar will probably be a good purchase as well. Um, also candles. Um, I don't know if any of you follow the Instagram account, every outfit on sex in the city. Oh, sure. Uh, yes. Uh, and they just launched a candle, uh, that they send to me, which is a collaboration with Yowie. It's called single and fabulous. Mm. Uh, and it also smells great. Even if you are not single and fabulous, you know, um, you can sniff that and feel like you're Carrie, you know, we all want I just light it. And I just light it. And then just, um, type away. <laughs> Uh, while hearing my voiceover thundering in my ear. I just got news for you. Anybody who's a Carrie does not need any instruction to feel like Carrie. No. They are uh, <laughs> the main character, if you will. Yeah. I only consider myself a Carrie because I associate with like the you know, like the messy thing she does in relationships. Not ah. thinking I'm, you know, like walking around in chic outfits and um seeing a bus go by with my face on it. <laughs> Oh yeah, you would just hate that. You would right? really—that uh -huh. would be terrible. That would be such an awful thing. I could see myself hitting uh, my groom uh, with a bouquet in the middle of the street if he jilted me at the altar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, as a Samantha uh, Miranda rising, I have to roll my eyes twice again. So. <laughs> uh, I'm always talking about Douglas Sirk on the podcast um, and uh, written on the wind. Gets it a gift that's coming in early 2022, um, but it is written on the wind as being added to the a new Criterion disc is coming out. And, oh, cool! Um, nice. It looks luscious. Uh, we know I love that film. And uh, uh, written on the wind, by the way, has the most legendary mamboing scene you will ever see in a film. The so best if, death scene. Yes. <laughs> if, you, if you've not experienced Dorothy Malone's uh, Oscar-winning supporting performance, 1956, uh, it's one the fags are still clamoring for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like every so often I'll see, like someone used to share that scene on Twitter and be like, what the fuck is this? And if you just watch it out of context, it's completely insane. And then when you watch it in the context of the film, it is also completely yes. insane. No, you can't believe you're watching it. Yes. <laughs> Zany. Um, and then to give you all some um, Midwest content, um, there's a very fun book called The Midwest Survival Guide, you know, which is about jokes about um, growing up in the Midwest and, you know, like Midwest slang and things that we use. And it was written by a friend of mine, Charlie Behrens. <laughs> the lastly, I would recommend the book um, for writers, uh, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain uh, from George Saunders. Uh, mm. This is this is a book that um a professor um, of like Russian literature uh, writes it, and it's this idea that you know you can sort of like learn um, everything that needs to be um, learned from um, Russian literature, sort of about their writing and how they wrote and told stories. And it the book operates like a like you're taking a course. 
like it shows a passage from like Russian literature uh, and then it like like when it first opens up there's a passage and then he asks you to just sort of like think about how what you felt about it um, without sort of critiquing it um, and then each subsequent chapter you know gives you different pieces of Russian literature uh, and gets your reactions to it and how you would use that to write so it's a weirdly like very informative book on um Russian literature and it's also um sort of a you know version of like Stephen King's like on writing you know mm, that's so, cool uh, I'll have yeah, to Google that that's a joke about Nikolai Gogol moving right Hiro Marai, who's one of an amazing um, director, directed a bunch of episodes of Atlanta and some FK Twigs um, music videos. Um, put it on Instagram like a couple times, and then I finally bought it and was like, "It's a really good how-to writing book." And then I just mentioned Stephen King's on writing, and if you're a writer like and don't own that book, I don't know what yeah. you're doing. So I think it like comes with when you like realize you're a writer, it just appears in your house. It just shows up. Your English teacher just like shoves it into yeah. your backpack <laughs> and says. <laughs> read this anyway that was our first annual gift guide when we are back it's time for keep it and we are back with our favorite segment of the episode it is keep it zach as our guest, why don't you go first? Yeah, I'd love to. So this week, my keep it is going to be the Jesse Smollett trial, which I know everyone's like, what? Didn't that already happen? And it did. And it ended. And then it came back. And now it's back for the finale, which is his criminal. <laughs> <laughs> did I'm, it end in a mistrial or something? Yeah, it was thrown out. And then the city is now sued civilly because they want money back from the investigation. But to, what is happening this week, um, which is very serious, quote unquote, is a criminal trial based off the original um, allegations that he faked all of this, um, which like, honestly, he probably will lose. It's very likely. But like, he's going to just do community service. Like, it's really not that big of a deal. But I think like all of us were just over talking about this and what i'm so annoyed with is that like through the what two years has happened in 2019 that we've been like obsessing over just smollett like fox news talks about it every day like i somehow monitored this still is that like we still haven't talked about the fact that like the hate crime that may have happened to him happens all the time and they're only going up like this year is the highest rate ever recorded so far and like people still don't care but everyone keeps talking about justice smollett so i'm just like over it because like we keep like ignoring the real issues in the world by talking about justice smollett which like I just don't I you I love him fellow black black gay queen sure but like I want to move on past this I mean I feel like a whole insurrection happened since yeah. that you know like plenty of things have happened since the Jussie Smollett trial you know I mean is is Lady Gaga on the defense team you know I <laughs> know that she is trying to be a crime uh solver crime reporter. Oh, right, yes. uh, <laughs> I just uh yeah, it was weird when you would even mentioned uh, to me before in an email that um, the Jesse Smollett trial was back because I was like, back? <laughs> what? <laughs> I was like, we still doing renewed this? Renewed for a fourth season, yes. <laughs> Just like, it's like, it really feels like renewed for the fourth season. And like, I get um, it why, like Donald Trump, I don't know if you'll know this, fun fact, when Donald Trump was impeached and he flew to do that big rally, I think it was in Florida somewhere, he did a rally. One of the mm -hmm. first things he said was the impeachment is a hoax and that that Jesse Smollett, it's similar to the Jesse Smollett hoax, and that he's really the victim. And like, so Donald Trump in his first statement about being impeached 
like brings up Jesse Smollett. So that that's why it's like such a big deal because the right's obsessed with mm. it. But like, let it go. Let's just let it go. It just is annoying on every level. That's interesting to me because I mean, I feel like obviously, you know, like you were monitoring this story, but um, we never really get into the minutia of the fact that there are certain news stories that like the right and like the Fox News like obsess over daily and like just racist old white people are getting a constant barrage of not information about every day, but just like the same insane fact repeated every day. It's and like the it Kathy Griffin mask head. situation with the, the Trump mm, yes. mask or whatever. It's like, yes. it is not a big deal to us over here. It's not representative of much of anything. And you are choosing it as this sort of beacon of what's wrong with mm-hmm. anybody who's progressive or liberal or whatever. Anyway, you know how the right works. Yeah. No. Right. You know, like you could be like there's people going home probably for Thanksgiving, you know, and they're sitting down. Their parents are like ah, that Jesse Smollett trial. Mm-hmm. You know, they're finally going to get him, And someone's going to be like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Girl? <laughs> yeah, <I'm>, yep. <laughs> anyway, um, shout out to Fox News. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is leading their coverage lately. So, yes. Is Gutfeld still on? Stay know. blonde and or bow tied. <laughs> yeah, Lewis is Gutfeld still on? Oh yeah, no. Apparently, he crushes it in the ratings sometimes. <laughs> Whatever the ratings uh, are, I don't have a Neil, Neil. I don't have a Nielsen machine anymore. <laughs> um, I was a Nielsen family for one year. Wow. <laughs> um, what is your keep it this week, Lewis? Um, my keep it is to the Grammys. I should technically be excited for this because, you know, it's the G and EGOT. It's something we celebrate every year. I have a pretty good historical knowledge of the Grammys and like who won album of the year all these years ago. So like my brain is trained to love it. But honestly, over the past couple of years, they've devolved so terribly. And now there are thousands of nominees per category, which the New York Times just dis- uh, told us was decided at the last minute that they would add two more uh, nominees to the major categories, up to 10. And somehow we know which two nominees were added every time. Uh, In the album of the year category, Donda by Kanye West and Evermore by Taylor Swift were added at the last minute. And it's like when you heard um, when that time when uh, Peter McNichol got uh, disqualified from the Emmy guest actor category and they replaced him with Peter Scolari and then Peter Scolari ended up winning that and you thought well he wouldn't have even been nominated had he not been disqualified so this entire thing doesn't make any sense anyway Mm -hmm. this is just another chapter in the Grammys I don't want to say don't matter because of course they don't matter awards don't matter whatever but they stand for so little at this point and ABBA is finally nominated for the first time ever in the uh, song category and they, it was revealed they were added at the last minute. So it's like, I can't even really be happy for them. Uh, and well, I'm you know, a super fan. Well, you know, that's the name of the game, Lewis. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> <laughs> I also can't be happy for them because I don't like this album. I'm, I know. I don't want this. Like, I want to be honest about my feelings because it's a pop culture podcast, but I kind of was willing to just lie for the rest of my life and say I really liked it, but you unfortunately have changed my direction. 
for, when you put on ABBA now, it can it will turn up a dance floor still, you know. Please. And the only thing this is turning on is the Lord of the Dance. <laughs> <laughs> like I do not know how our disco and pop cakes and queens gave us this like you know like album that sounds like it's the soundtrack to Dancing at Lunasa. What is happening <laughs> wow. here? Wow, a, Mer- is- a Meryl Deep cut for me. Thank you so much. It must be Christmas time. Um, uh, no, you're right. It's just kind of a drab album, too. I like, um, I still have faith in you. I like that song, but um, there, obviously the greatness of ABBA's older albums remains immortal, and you can revisit, revisit that time and again, luckily. But this album, I don't need to as much. Mm-hmm. My Keep It This Week goes to, I guess, sort of this, like, need of feeling like people need to suffer problems in silence, you know? And I think it's coming directly from, you know, the loss of Virgil Abloh, Mm. um, who, you know, died this week unexpectedly to us at the age of 41, but he was, like, silently suffering with cancer. And, um, you know, he died, you know, just, like, two years shy of when um chadwick boseman died yeah. um and i just feel like um it's just really sad and heartbreaking you know getting these stories you know sort of um famous black men who are giants in their industry sort of like dying but also you know like sort of silently dealing with it because you know like they're devoted to their work yes um but also um you know, feel like there's this greater purpose that they need to do, Um, Mm -hmm. especially Virgil, you know, talking about how like, um, you know, him being the head of, you know, like Louis Vuitton, right? You know, it wasn't, that wasn't the win for him. It was the idea that um, getting of six other black kids after him, you know, in the door or like seeing like another fashion house take a chance on someone who was, you know, sort of like breaking the fashion game, making it cool. And, um, you know, I know we always made a lot of jokes about Virgil. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, did we? Yeah, black people were black always. People oh, I see. Oh, I see. Oh, always good. Yeah. I like misinterpreted the we there. A twenty dollars <laughs> isn't it? A twenty dollars considered a Virgil? Is that what it is? Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, Something a like Virgil. That, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, it was it was always understanding that, like you know, like we loved his work. He was always great at getting other people in the door. Um, he's like such a great visionary. Uh, done so much fucking amazing work for Kanye. To be honest, yeah. um, was you know like the good angel <laughs> if we're uh, talking about it in that respect. But you know, I just feel like. Um, I get being devoted to your craft and, you know, listen, like, you know, Virgil and like Chadwick aren't the only people, you know, who sort of had to like struggle through um, this. Um, But man, it really just sort of sucks feeling like, you know, like you are in a world where you have Mm -hmm. to um, hide this diagnosis so that you can sort of continue to do the work because you're also probably afraid of, you know, how people will react or treat you uh, if they know that you have it. Yeah. And I also just think a lot about these two men, Virgil and Chadwick, are people that were pushing the culture forward specifically for black mm-hmm. people and in charge of like creating bigger tables like black panther changed everything for so many people um mm-hmm. similar to what virgil has done and the fact that we see virgil took on like even a bigger role he's the highest profile black executive at the highest profile luxury goods um company mm-hmm. in the world and he did that while battling cancer shows that like mm-hmm. on his mind was i gotta make good use of this time i have left so that more people have seats and i just breaks my heart that, like the last few years on this earth for both of them chadwick and virgil was about building tables for people um that they can't mm-hmm. sit at anymore it's just really really sad yeah, I mean, it really resonated, particularly after losing 
Sondheim when people were talking about how he was still, you know, seeing shows up until mm-hmm. like right before he died. You know, I have a friend who was working on um, PR with his company. I have friends who were doing uh, work with him and they had meetings planned with him at Art Basel this week. You know, like they were flying to have these meetings um, when they got the news that he died. It means he was like working up until that last minute. So yeah, I feel like that's a really um, great point, Zach. You know, just the idea of these black men working for seats at the table for other people. um, And now they can't even really enjoy that. And the other way it makes me think of Sondheim is um, you brought up Lewis Hell. We don't have that many gay elder statesmen, you know, who survived like AIDS, you know, who are able to share their work with us, like have reached the fucking age of 91. And um, it just makes me sad about the dearth of, you know, like older black artists um, who we haven't seen, you know, reach that point, you know, like you every every time so often you get someone like a Cicely Tyson who's still alive or something. Right. But, you know, like the other ones, um, there's so many things I feel like that can kill black men these days. And it's very sad seeing like a Chadwick and a Virgil taken out like that. And then it also I feel like, you know, in a way puts a fire under other black creatives to want to get their stories and work done. But I don't know, you're running against like a clock that is um, running out quickly. Well, so. Sondheim is also the standard for how you want an artist appreciated. Again, yeah. he was somebody whose entire body of work was being celebrated as early as 1973, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And so he got to spend 50 years personally himself knowing how much his work meant, but also everybody else got to say what it meant to them too and you know and really zero in on that and have a moment uh communally about that yeah and Mm -hmm. i will say even though virgil did die so young at 41 um you know to pull this full circle for all of us he's also from the chicagoland area he's from rockford uh and what i know most from living in chicago is that he was deeply loved and celebrated alongside kanye west his career the last 10 years so that's where i find a lot of grace with him is that he did know people loved him a lot and he really leaned into that by creating like every event he'd have he'd make sure students were there at his shows he was always teaching but he knew he was loved but when he left and i think that's really special because so many people don't know that when they leave this earth um so at least we have that, I guess. Lastly, I just want to think about the last line, you know, in like um, Dorian St. Felix's um, piece on him. Queen and, Dorian St. Felix. In The New Yorker, where she wrote that his presence caused or forced the fashion industry to accept the values that it dismissed as unserious, earnestness, excitement, credulity, love, and what could be more serious than love. And um, bringing that back to Sondheim, you know, I just like, I sobbed during like the last hour of West Side Story, you know? And I think that stories like that and art like that is really important and it's really meaningful to people. And um, I think that um, that's what a lot of people want to see more of. And that's it. Slay. Yeah. Anyway, um, thank you to Portia Williams for being here this week. Uh, Thank you to Zach for being a fantastic guest. Woof. Oh my God, you were Thank so you. lovely and Brad. 
This this is wonderful. This is like the highlight of my whole year now. So thank you for this. Okay. This was fun. Well, that's too bad. Okay. <laughs> I know. It's like it's it's okay. Like it's like MSNBC going to like be on uh, VH1's best week ever. <laughs> Listen, the plus side to this, I don't think I'm going to leave this podcast and get a lot of like death threats from the far right, which is all you get from MSNBC. It's just a constant you'd be barrage. surprised. <laughs> well, I'm ready. I'm ready for the girls. <laughs> Uh, no, you mentioned Jesse, so Tucker Carlson's going to air on the entirety of the podcast um, yep. on his broadcast <laughs> tonight. <laughs> I'm excited about that. Yay, Tucker. He's done this to me before. He put my face on his show the last time Jesse was happening. So I got Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a whole drama. There were letters sent to the office where I was getting death threats. It was a whole thing. So. He is so scraping for content. Yeah. My God. Not that he was always, not that he was a brilliant content maker before. Mm. I know. Anyway, we can move you on. Know, whole, you know, actually, a bit of tea before we end this on Mr. Tucker. You know the episode of Tucker Carlson that like blew up Lauren Duca? Yeah. Yeah. I was supposed to be on that episode. And at the last minute, I was like, I'm not doing this. And I pulled out. Smart, honestly, smart. And that was even an episode where he was the one episode where a guest like actually owned him too. So yeah, yeah, because they preach they pre-tape a lot of those. By the way, like when I get right. bounds, mm -hmm. they'll ask me to do a pre-tape. I'm like, girl, I'm not letting you edit my words. Are you insane? Right, right. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, it was it was because of the tweets I had made. About, do you remember the era when um Ivanka and Jared wrote Jet Blue? so that they could have people yell at them yeah. so then they could do an outrage machine. I made some tweet about like, why is this, why is this half of pretending that she flies coach? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they wanted me to come on Tucker Carlson and talk about it. And I said, absolutely not. And the culture is worse now. So there you go. <laughs> I could have had a column at Teen Vogue, Lewis. <laughs> 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 All right, we will see you next week with more Keep It. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job, too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin, and the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's gonna be great. <laughs>